as you're out of your house or back at work, there's less time to be at home with, with kids and family. So DoorDash just becomes even more convenient, if anything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode of the Investing City podcast, super excited to talk with Secret Capital. So you may follow him on Twitter, but today we're going to talk about DoorDash. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, Ryan. Really happy to be here. Awesome. So let's... um. Let's just dive right in. I mean, tell us a little bit about DoorDash and just kind of give us the overview. Sure. So the way I've structured it is I want to start with the DoorDash creation story, how they started, what their mission is, and then going through the different product offerings that DoorDash has, the value add to each player in the DoorDash ecosystem. Then we go into why DoorDash is I think the best food delivery player in the US as well as a little bit about their TAM and then we can end on the unit economics and the valuation. So the way that DoorDash was started was it was a Stanford Business School project that Tony Hsu and his three co-founders took on. They had to just solve a problem and they chose restaurants as the target audience who they wanted to help out. And what's interesting is the, the delivery product wasn't the first solution that they were offering. So they created an entire app which helped restaurants figure out how they were getting their customers. And so they were visiting a bunch of restaurants and pitching their product. And most rest, restaurants were, were telling them, look, we don't really need this. We won't end up paying for it. But then at one point they visited a small macaroon store. And this was a one person shop, it was a person named Chloe, and she told them, wait, I don't need your, whatever your marketing product is, but I do have a big problem around delivery. And then she showed them this entire book, which was filled with pages of deliveries that she just couldn't fulfill because she was a one person store. And so that's where the idea kind of clicked for Tony and his co-founders. They said, okay, these are the people, this is a solution that we can help restaurants out with. It's delivery. And, and so the solution that they had then is, this, is the same mission that they have today, which is they want to enable every merchant to deliver, especially those that were left behind in the convenience economy, because we've become used to getting everything in just a few clicks and COVID accelerated that trend. And in that sense, the social mission is really appealing to me. I really like that when I when I read about that story because it reminds me also of Shopify versus Amazon. So Shopify allows all these small merchants to have tools that allow them to compete against Amazon, which is the huge player. You know, small merchants have websites. They have this third place, third party marketplace of apps where they can get 
um, fulfillment and logistics services, shipping, tax compliance, etc. And in a similar way, I compared DoorDash um, in that it allows small restaurants and merchants to compete against Domino's. So Domino's is this huge, uh, it's probably the best managed restaurant in the US, I think, just because, not, not because they have the best pizza, but because they're very consistent. They have the best user experience on the app. They have, they're consistent on delivery. It's always 30 minutes or less. And the pizza is almost, it almost always tastes the same. You know exactly what you're getting and that's what's made them successful. And DoorDash is giving all the tools to small guys to compete against the big players, against the big, well-capitalized players like Domino's. So I'm a big fan of the, the social mission. Now, the how, how does DoorDash make money? Basically, whenever there's an order, the customer, the end user pays a delivery fee and a service fee. And DoorDash also has a, a take rate from each merchant. Um, and the most interesting product offering, which I found is the membership program. So Dash Pass, that's where customers pay this, pay this flat monthly fee, $9.99 every month. And so they get unlimited deliveries from a certain amount of merchants for free every single month. And I think this Dash Pass offering is extremely important and underrated. I'm gonna come back to it later. Mm mostly just because of how many offerings DoorDash can add on. So right now they just offer restaurants, but eventually they're going to add, they're going to offer um, convenience store, foods, grocery store, flowers, whatever, and uh, a bunch of other offerings. But, but we'll come back to this a little later. And, and in total, just a couple of numbers. So DoorDash has 400,000 merchants, 18 million customers, and 1 million dashers on their platforms in the US, Canada, and Australia. I wanna speak about the value add to each of these partners in the DoorDash ecosystem. So the merchants, the dashers, and the customers. And the most important part to get the flywheel running is getting as many restaurants as possible on the platform. And a big concern that bears seem to have is merchants don't need um, DoorDashes and they're charging way too much. Um, they're not adding much value to the platform. Thing is, of course, I don't agree and I'll tell you why, which is, so I think DoorDash has this platform which gives merchant the opportunity to reach new customers and grow their business, get a bunch of new sales that leverage the fixed cost investments that the merchants already made. So it's, DoorDash has created this entire new, um, demand creation channel. And a couple of stats which I found really interesting were that 80% of delivery orders that DoorDash makes are incremental to merchants on-premise business. So they're serving a whole new class of customers and leveraging these fixed costs. And then other ways that DoorDash adds value to merchants is they, they have a few other offerings. So for example, DoorDash Drive, which when a merchant has their own app and their own marketing service already, DoorDash Drive allows for white label logistics service. So if you're ordering from Chipotle, for example, a DoorDash, a Dasher from DoorDash will deliver the burrito from Chipotle, but it seems like 
you're actually getting it from a Chipotle delivery person. And then they have, for example, DoorDash for work, and then they have catering. But an interesting underrated aspect to, to DoorDash for a merchant is that one very small customer can, be, can become a whale on the platform. By that, I mean, if there's a very small restaurant which has good food, but doesn't have the right marketing or maybe not the right location, maybe it's off the highway, if they can, if they can deliver a very consistent customer experience, which means they always, um, they, whatever, their food tastes good, it's delivered on time, they always respect customer specifications, then that means customer ratings for that restaurant will be very good. And so they'll always be at the top thanks to the DoorDash algorithm. So there's a lot of optionality as well for merchants to be listed on DoorDash. And the second part of the flywheel are the dashers. So now we know that there's a lot of value add to merchants and now there's the dashers. Why would a dasher pick to serve DoorDash instead of Uber or Grubhub or, or Postmates? I think it's because because DoorDash has the most restaurants, they also have the most dashers because dashers look at how many restaurants they, if there's more restaurants, that means more deliveries and more deliveries mean more money. So that's why dashers sign on with, um, with DoorDash. And what's interesting is there was a study that was done and it showed that DoorDash dashers make double what an Uber driver makes in an hour. So the average salary for a dasher is above $20 an hour, whereas for Uber, it's like $11. So when you have to make that decision, who am I gonna drive for? It's simple, you, you go for DoorDash. And now there's the last piece, which is us, the customers. So now, because DoorDash has a bunch of merchants, that means for us, we have the widest selection of restaurants to choose from. Um, that are personalized or curated for us. And because there's the most dashers, it means delivery times come down over time. And the proof of that is the average delivery time right now for DoorDash is 35 minutes. But these delivery times have been reduced by about 25% over time. And they'll come down even more. So that's why um, all these different players sign on with, with DoorDash. And I want to go into a little, dig more into why and how DoorDash got the most merchants to begin with. So DoorDash started, at the very beginning, they started with a focus on suburban markets and smaller metropolitan areas because DoorDash wasn't the biggest player, wasn't the biggest player, they weren't the first entry, they weren't the first player to enter the food delivery market. So they and all their competitors were focusing on denser cities where there's more people and more restaurants within a smaller area. So because of root density makes it more lucrative for um, for these delivery platforms to be in these denser cities. But DoorDash decided to focus on suburban markets. But because they focused on this market that no one else was in, they saw much higher growth. And there are a few economic characteristics of suburbs which are attractive, which is customers are more likely to be families. And so they order more items per order. There's lighter traffic in the suburbs. Um, 
it's easier to park, which means it's easier for dashers to serve these markets more efficiently. And so this relentless focus on suburbs led to market share in suburban markets to increase by 35% between 2018 and 2020, which shows just how successful the strategy was. And there's a few other details about merchants, about how they got the most merchants on the platform, which was DoorDash was also not just not only did they go after suburban markets, but at a more micro level, they were very aggressive in going after restaurants. So they got a bunch of exclusive partnerships, for example, with Chili's and the Cheesecake Factory, where they're mostly present in the suburbs. They also got partnerships with 175 of the top 200 national food chains. And then for each restaurant, even for the smaller ones, DoorDash was very aggressive. For example, the marketplace fee, which is the listing fee that restaurants are charged to be on the DoorDash platform, DoorDash would leave it at 0% for a while just to get merchants on the platform. And they'd partner very deeply also at a from a physical standpoint. And by that, I mean they'd arrange for in restaurants to have a dedicated parking spot for DoorDash drivers. They also have a dedicated line in the restaurant. They also made sure, for example, that the software was made to time demand. So for a lot of other platforms, the complaint for customers was that by the time they'd get the food, it was cold. So DoorDash programmed the software in such a way that dashers would only get an order once the food was almost ready. And so by the time they get there, the food is still hot. And by the time the food gets to the end user, it's also still hot. And, and also um, in these exclusive partnerships that DoorDash had, they, they, the strategic nature of the partnerships also came through like in marketing expenses. So when DoorDash and Chipotle signed this commitment, DoorDash said, we're gonna provide 50% of all marketing expen ex uh, expenses. So when you combine all these things together, it creates certain, I'm not gonna say switching costs, but there's definitely a friction and an annoyance for all these restaurants to sign on with several food delivery platforms. And I think this micro level focus on the customer is thanks to this great culture of servant leadership that they have at DoorDash. So Tony Shu, the founder, and other people at DoorDash, they spend one day every single month delivering food themselves or providing customer support or support to merchants. So they're very aware of all the problems that merchants and, and customers have. And I also think that eventually, not now, but eventually there's gonna be very high root density, especially as DoorDash adds on more offerings beyond restaurant food. So when they add on convenience stores and grocery stores and flower stores, et cetera, within a small area, there's going to be very high root density, which means that dashers will be able to make more deliveries every hour. And so that's going to lead to better economics, not just for the dashers, but also for the platform. So I hope that now the goal is to have explained how DoorDash got the most restaurants and how they got the flywheel spinning, because and we're already seeing the results of that, right? Because right now in the US, DoorDash has over 50% market share overall and 60% market share in the suburbs. And I do think that this is going to be 
a winner take most game. Maybe not winner take all, but I think it's going to be um, winner take most. Now I want to talk a little bit about the TAM. Another concern that Bears and even the sell side brings up is that DoorDash was successful because you know we were all stuck at home. It was a pandemic, and now I think people are going to start going out again, and orders are going to start coming down very quickly. But I'm just I'm not sure that's true because DoorDash will continue being convenient, and it'll start to be even more convenient as things start to normalize, and people are allowed out of their homes again because as you're out of your house or back at work there's less time to be at home with with kids and families so doordash just becomes even more convenient if anything and a couple of really cool stats i found which show just how early we are in consumer adoption for food delivery is that right now u.s consumers are just for doordash are just six percent of the overall u.s population and combined all together in 2019 the food delivery platforms had a marketplace gross order value of eight billion dollars which is less than three percent of the total 300 billion dollar off-premise opportunity and that's just for for restaurants and consumer food services so again the point here is we're in the very early stages of, of consumer adoption and now we're at the last part, which is the unit economics and a little bit on evaluation. So I think DashPass is one of the most important things to happen in the industry. And it might end up being, I think eventually it's going to end up being one of the largest subscription products in the US. Like I'm talking up there with Netflix and Spotify. And the subscription element piece here is really important because it leads to a direct relationship with the customer and it has a related very heavy cash flow generation which gives the company more flexibility over time including the flexibility to charge much lower delivery prices and we've seen precedent for that in other markets so if we're talking for example about amazon prime the more they delivered they started with books and then they, they started adding on toys appliances electronics the more they delivered the lower the prices got and that's what allowed them to offer amazon prime and i think DashPass is very similar to amazon prime because customers can get a zero dollar whenever they order they pay this monthly fee but the delivery each month is zero dollars now i want to give an example of a $20 unit order from a unit's economics perspective. And here I'm just going to roughly, I inspired myself from the work of UBS, which did a really good job. But so if we assume a $20 order, delivery fee on that is zero. And they're saying service fee is $2, the merchant commission is $4, and the dasher payout is $4.60. And the good thing here is that the revenue per order is still positive. Now, this, the kind of downside is because customers on DashPass don't pay a delivery fee, the revenue per order for DashPass is 70% lower than for non-DashPass users. But the bright side is orders per month. 
so far have been three times more for Dash Pass users versus non-Dash Pass users. So the total monthly revenue for DoorDash ends up being 60% more for Dash Pass users versus non-Dash Pass users. And what I suspect is going to happen is that most DoorDash customers are going to end up being Dash Pass customers. And I think that delivery, and so delivery fees will go to zero for all of them because DoorDash is charging zero for delivery fees, which I think makes a lot of sense because I've seen a bunch of people complain on Instagram and Twitter, for example, through memes that delivery fees are too high. And I think that's a very fair comment. Like, I don't think it's sustainable to, you know, pay $5 for a drink and then have to pay $20, $15 for it because of delivery fees and service fees. So I think the Dash Pass offering is really just revolutionary. And so now a little bit about valuation. So the sell side is assuming that 40% of the US population by 2025 is going to be on a food delivery platform. So roughly 100 million people. And I assumed that DoorDash holds on or approaches 60% market share. So that gives us 60 million people using DoorDash by 2025. And I also assumed some pricing power. And the reason I assumed pricing power is I think that as DoorDash adds on more and more offerings, they get the spoils of the victor. The spoils of the victor meaning the most market share. And then it becomes very sticky and annoying for customers to switch platforms because Uber Eats and Grubhub and so on won't be able to offer the same subscription product because they just don't have the same amount of merchants on their platform. So, and, and so I think there's going to be some pricing power there and Dash Pass monthly price is going to go from $10 to $15 easily. So, so I was saying 60 million users, $15 a month, every single month that gives us roughly $10.8 billion. And now I've assumed the multiple that I took is 20 times EBITDA. The reason I took 20 times EBITDA is I think that Dash Pass piece of the $15 a month that I'm assuming, I think it's going to be extremely high margin, like easily 50% 50, 50 EBITDA, just because the merchant commission is going to end up, and the service fee are going to end up taking care of all the fixed costs that DoorDash has. That's what I'm assuming. And so even if they get very, very low margins, on each re on the revenue per order, it doesn't matter because the most important piece is Dash Pass. And and so yeah, so I'm assuming times um, 10.8 billion times it's going to be trading at 20 times EBITDA, which gives um, 10.8 billion in sales, um, which gives 5.4 billion roughly in EBITDA and put a 20 times EBITDA multiple on that. And that doesn't give us great returns. So that's roughly $108 billion market cap. We're at 65 billion right now. It gives low double digit IRRs. Now, consider though that that's the base case. I didn't take into consideration um, 
Australia or the or Canada in this calculation for the customers. It could be that uh, DashPass's price is higher than fifteen dollars a month, um, and it's possible that they actually do get like very positive margin uh, margins from the merchant commission. So that's how I'm thinking about valuation unit economics. Overall, look, I think winner take most market, winner take most platform, the most value add to each player in the ecosystem. Valuation isn't great, but it can still make sense. Yeah, thanks for going through that. That was really thorough and, and amazing. So I appreciate it. I would love to talk a little bit about the optionality. Like I think that this is a piece that is super interesting. You touched on, you know, maybe they move into grocery. Like, how are you thinking of even DoorDash versus something like an Instacart and maybe some other aspects of optionality? Yeah, so I think um, for, well, for Instacart, they're already competing through Dashmart, which is kind of their online convenience store. And the kind of optionality that I didn't consider, I assume basically that the merchant take rate and the service fee would lead to 0% or very close to 0% margins for DoorDash, but it could end up being very positive. So if we're thinking about the cloud kitchen offering that DoorDash Kitchens has, which is DoorDash invests all this, all these fixed costs into these that kind of central kitchens where a bunch of restaurants can be, the take rates on those are even higher than for most orders. So those could end up also being very high margin. So that's another uh, source of, of optionality. And another more kind of underrated source of optionality, I think it's a little out there, I didn't mention in the main part, is they end up being kind of like Meituan in China. And what Meituan is doing is they gather all this data on customers. So they, they, they figure out what kind of food the customer likes. Eventually they'll figure out all sorts of items that the customer likes and they'll be able to advertise based on that. And so they'll get advertising fees, not just advertising, but actually get uh, a margin based on, let's say certain companies sell things to DoorDash customers. So they'll, they'll get, they could get a take rate based on that. Now, I think that's, I think the advertising piece makes sense, but to sell other things on the DoorDash platform is a little out there, but it's a source of optionality. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. I love the the Meituan analogy. I mean, one other thing that I thought was interesting is even just the mission statement. You alluded to it of DoorDash being sort of the Shopify, arming the rebels, so to speak. And the mission exactly. statement is to grow and empower local economies. And as you said, just the that suburban mindset. And um, so Uber's mission statement, on the other hand, is we ignite opportunity by setting the world in motion. Um, so even just the difference between like the world and how they've expanded globally so fast and DoorDash, you know, the very local economies, the ethos of both companies are just so different. But I would like you to talk a little bit about, you know, I think a lot of people would say, you know, that the big red flag is Uber's willingness to burn cash and, you know, all these promotions. So just talk a little bit more about just Uber and kind of competition right there. Yeah, sure. So. So around first, I want to address the, the ethos that you mentioned around the social, the, the missions of the company. I think, well, first DoorDash was competing at a time where 
Uber was just not focusing on Uber Eats. Like that wasn't their main focus. It was to focus on the ride hailing platform. And then they realized, okay, we might have something with Uber Eats. And, and then they started focusing on it. But by that time, DoorDash was already um, a huge, um, a huge platform. And I also like that Tony, he, he mentioned, even the, the S1, he mentioned his mom, and the fact that when she came to, it's a great American story, but she, she came from China because his dad joined this engineering, this PhD engineering program here. And she worked at restaurants and Tony would help her out when he was younger. And he wanted to help out people like his mom. So there's a deep connection for Tony to this to this idea. And in that sense, it kind of reminded me of Nike. Like remember in Shoe Dog where Phil Knight was telling us he found Nike. Well, first he was always connected to running. It's where he felt fulfilled. It's where he reached a flow state. And then it, he actually created the idea for Nike in a Stanford MBA um, classroom. So similar to DoorDash in that sense. Um, and so the reason why I think they're winning over Uber Eats is they were just more aggressive first in going after merchants. Um, and these are wins that I think are going to last over time. And the reason they won over Grubhub is Grubhub was more focused on being a marketplace rather than having the whole logistics solution figured out. So they would just match up customers and restaurants already offered delivery. And the good thing about that is the economics of it are excellent. They were profitable very early on, whereas DoorDash still isn't. But the downside to that is, okay, but that leaves this huge TAM that they haven't addressed. And I'm trying, I'm just trying to find the number here very quickly. Right. And one number that shows that door, how good of a decision it was for DoorDash to focus on the entire time of restaurants, including those that didn't have delivery services, is how good their market share was. So DoorDash went from a 19 to 33% market share in 2018 to 2019, where Grubhub went from 43% to 32%. So DoorDash is straight up stealing market share away from, from Grubhub. Definitely. Um, so, you know, one thing that I was just thinking of and going back to the optionality thing is I would love to see a DoorDash good RX partnership with pharmacies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that would be super interesting where people could get like 80% off paying cash pharmacies and then DoorDash just doing all those deliveries. I think, I think that would be a no brainer, but um, anyway, just like I, the, it's really interesting thinking about the like DoorDash sort of having these dashers as this value and then they can kind of move them around. So you're talking about the white label service. Do you think, um, like what do some of the economics there look like? Is it sort of commodifying DoorDash or do you view it as like pretty incremental to the business? Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't, there isn't that much disclosure around the economics of white of the white label services. But what I assumed is that even that could be 0% or close to 0% margins. Um, and DoorDash could still, the stock could still end up working out really well. Um, just because they make it so much easier for, for merchants to deliver. Like as long as 
the the takeaway that DoorDash charges is less than the merchant's rent and labor cost for delivery, it's worth it. Again, I I'd love to to be able to give you a number, but there just isn't that much around how much they charge for the white label service. But even if it ends up being you know close to zero, I think it end up working out. And the good thing is here they have like strategic partnerships. So for example, with Chipotle, I think with Walmart too, and around the white label service. So it does seem like it's the same piece as with merchants on the platform. They just need to be as aggressive as possible in getting as many merchants as, as possible on the platform. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even just the name is kind of interesting. DoorDash, like it doesn't say anything about food. Um, it just kind of leaves it open, which I, I always, it might be just like a <laughs> sort of, bias thing but i mean the amazons of the world just the name doesn't say like we're, we're only delivering books i mean there's just so much optionality embedded in even the name that um uh, i think it's interesting um and, and go ahead and and yeah I, I think and tony's being like very straight up he says look we started with food it's a very difficult market to tackle on and we've we started this flywheel. We have all these dashers. The dashers might be the most important piece of the flywheel. We've got all these dashers set up, and they're going. To, and then we're going to leverage our kind of installed base, so so called of dashers to serve a bunch of other markets. And another similarity to Amazon, it's not just like the Dash Pass isn't just like Amazon Prime, but the general idea is now restaurants are going omni-channel. And they can go omni-channel thanks to DoorDash. So there, it's kind of like Amazon Cloud, where eventually companies said, uh, Amazon AWS, in the sense that companies said, okay, now we have to go on the cloud. We can't just capitalize all our software costs. We're going to make it an OPEX. We're going to switch to the cloud. And it's kind of a similar transition that restaurants are making with these food delivery platforms. Is Eventually, they just won't have a choice but to be on them just because all their competitors are on there. Hmm, totally. Um, so I would love to talk about in five years, DoorDash is still a $60 billion company. Sort of like what are those reasons, like a little pre-mortem, um, what went wrong? And and uh, yeah, just what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think the biggest risk obviously is multiple expansion. Like. I think they did like two billion in gross order value. They're trading at, if my number is right, and they're trading at a $65 billion market cap. And so that's a huge multiple. It could come down over time a lot. Um, but so I think that's the biggest risk to the stock. But to the business, if we're talking, is if someone is able to figure out the logistics piece around each niche. And so let's say you mentioned GoodRx and pharmacy. So if some startup comes along and says, okay, we're just going to focus on pharmacies and then they get their flywheel going and they're the most aggressive in getting the most pharmacies, then that's how they could win. But I feel like the, the they're certainly there, but the odds aren't super high because that platform would then have to get all these dashers all this entire logistics service set up and that is very very difficult um to source and to pay them a good salary and benefits and all that and here as doordash starts to make more money 
they could be very aggressive here, which is, and they could do what Just Eat did in Europe, which is they started offering their drivers like full time like full time wages. They started offering benefits like like health and other social benefits. Now, granted, that's in Europe, but if DoorDash really decided to become a savage, they could totally do that. And so that's how they would ensure that DoorDash keeps its dashers on its platform. And and yes, it wouldn't even matter if they're not as aggressive in getting the pharmacies, for example. Yeah. Um, so I love that you brought up Dash Pass and I love the bold claim that, you know, like everything's going to kind of go that way as, you know, similar to uh, Amazon Prime service where they can just leverage um, their fixed costs like crazy. So, I mean, Uber has some sort of subscription for ride hailing. Do they have that for Uber Eats? I can't remember. I don't think so. I don't think they do have one for Uber Eats. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, like I did make a very bold claim around DashPass. That's another thing that could go wrong because right now they have 5 million DashPass users. I assume they'd get to 60 million at least by 2025. So, you know, that's a 12X over five years. That very possible that it doesn't go like that at all and that most customers end up um, just being non-DashPass users and that food delivery becomes commoditized. I think that's a big part of the bear case that it doesn't matter if you're on uh, Grubhub or Uber Eats or DoorDash, it's, there's like zero switching costs. It's just which button do you press on your phone? Of course, I'm missing that's not what's going to happen. And DoorDash is able to leverage this. It's a huge competitive position to have this subscription offering, but that, that's definitely a part of the bear case. Totally. Um, I, I just think it's really interesting to even think five, 10 years down the road and thinking about Amazon's logistics infrastructure versus what DoorDash's will be. I mean, it's just a very different uh, sort of strategy. I mean, Amazon, of course, is just hiring like crazy, buying all of these trucks, just building out a crazy fleet and the delivery times are just already so fast. Um, and then DoorDash is more of like these local deliveries that you can, um, you know, if you're a business owner, like my friend, actually, we were just talking about this. He is interested in starting like a self-storage, but Uber version, you know, where you'd have like people just go around and pick up stuff. And it would be so interesting to just plug into DoorDash's, you know, it's like <laughs> drivers as a service almost where you can just like get uh deliveries for your business and plug basically plug them right into your infrastructure um so i, I just think that that is really interesting and there's just a, a ton of optionality there um it, yeah it's just kind of interesting to think of of all these scenarios um but i think you've done an amazing job of breaking down this business is there anything else that you want to kind of end on or, or talk about i think look mm -hmm. I think that's, I think we did a good um, breakdown, I think the two of us together. And what gives me the most confidence again in the business is that they won't fall apart and that they will strengthen their competitive position and they will achieve great success with Dash Passes again. The focus around the customer and this culture that they have, um, you know, being a servant leader again, like that really shocked me, the whole idea with uh, like Tony, sometimes 
is a dasher. Like in San, if you're in San Jose, for example, you might get Tony as as your dasher at some point. I don't think Dara right drives an Uber. Um, <laughs> so that's what gives me a lot of confidence in this business. I love that. Uh, I mean, I got chills when you're talking about Tony and his mom and just like giving back. Um, and so one of the things that I thought was really interesting that you brought up was 80% of the orders being incremental. I think that is a piece that is super interesting because the take rate is like 11%, right? And a lot of that is demand creation. And when you look in that context, I mean, Amazon third-party marketplace is taking upwards of 25, 30%. And that, you know, is huge demand creation. But, you know, DoorDash has a, a good element of that. I mean, if you log on the app, I mean, sometimes people just start on the DoorDash app and like, okay, I don't really know what food I want versus starting at Yelp. It, and for physical, it's sort of like the Yelp for delivery. Um, and I, I think that that is a really interesting piece because 80% incremental, that business, okay, restaurants can say we're getting slammed. Um, you know, we don't really make as much for our physical orders, but that's not really the point. Like you wouldn't have got this order and, you know, maybe that's sort of being brash and not empathetic with the restaurants. But I think that is a little bit of the reality um, that these are incrementals. Like this is just wasted volume. You never would have had this in the first place. Um, so I want to end with just like kind of an out there question. Um, do you think DoorDash will ever create like their own branded restaurant, like maybe a ghost kitchen and have like DoorDash food? Do you think that would ever happen? Um, I think oof, that's a good question. I don't know if they'll ever create their own food just because it's not their their expertise. And in that sense, I kind of compare it to Roku, which is like Roku that it's an aggregator and DoorDash is kind of similar for merchants. And Roku has the Roku channel where people can upload their own channels on that central Roku channel. And I think that's what um, the cloud kitchen offering could be for DoorDash, but that's just not their expertise. Like Roku's expertise isn't in creating films or TV shows. And similarly, DoorDash's expertise isn't in making food. It's in helping merchants satisfy their customers through delivery solutions. I think you're spot on. I think that is a really interesting analogy, actually, the Roku channel and the DoorDash ghost kitchens. I love when kind of different business models can connect and draw analogies. But uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you doing this. And thanks for putting out that initial uh, tweet that we should do some more uh, business breakdowns like this. Yeah, again, really, really enjoyed it. And it was great that you knew the business well, too. So we could have like a kind of nice um, discussion around the business. Uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks again for the invite. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. You might have to do this again in the future. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.